1: That's Shopify.com slash special offer.
2: This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman.
1: Useless information.
2: When the citizens of Centerville, Indiana, which is a small town located approximately 60 miles or 97 kilometers east of Indianapolis, when they awoke on Friday, December 24th, 1937, they assumed that it would be a fairly typical Christmas Eve. A light rain fell from the sky as the work week was brought to a close, and children eagerly awaited the arrival of Santa and, of course, the gifts that he would bring. One of those children was John Bryan Jr., who had just turned four two weeks prior on December 13th. His mother over to give her only child the perfect Christmas and needed to run a few errands to complete the planned celebration. This included stopping at the local bank where her husband worked as a cashier. Now, as Mrs. Bryan had done numerous times before, she left young Johnny in the care of their babysitter, that 17-year-old high school student Norma Shroy. Not long after Mrs. Bryan had left for the bank, two men pulled up in a car outside the Bryan home around 2.30 p.m., and upon entering, forced Norma to call Mrs. Bryan. Norma told her that she had taken ill and that Mrs. Bryan needed to come home right away. Sensing that something was urgently wrong, Mrs. Bryan headed back home immediately. As Mrs. Bryan made her way home, one of the two men told Johnny that he needed to go for a ride to pick out a Christmas tree. Well, Johnny was too young to be scared, but Norma strongly protested the removal of the child. So all three got into the car, and they drove away. When Mrs. Bryant finally arrived at the house, the other man informed her that her son had been kidnapped. And the only way that she could assure young Johnny's safe return was for her to call the bank and tell her husband that he had to pay three thousand. dollars $800 immediately. That's about $67,000 today. Now this was money that Mrs. Bryan knew that the young couple did not have. So she made the wise decision to call the bank and talk to the president of the bank. That's a guy named Mark Stevens. She spoke to him first. Stevens then informed Mr. Bryan, who, along with several of the men, got in their cars and raced off to the Bryan home. Enter into the story a guy named Julian Dunbar. He was a local grocer and one of those people who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. As the kidnapper who stayed behind anxiously awaited the arrival of the ransom money, the grocer just happened to stop at the home to make a delivery and was mistaken by the kidnapper for Mr. Brian. Just as the real Mr. Brian and the other men pulled within 100 yards or 90 meters of the home, the kidnapper could be seen forcing the grocer Dunbar, who he thought was Mr. Brian, and Mrs. Brian into the front seat of the Brian family car, which had been parked along the curb. With the bandit standing on the exterior running board of the car, he forced Dunbar behind the steering wheel and demanded that he floor it and get them out of there. Suddenly, bullets began to fly. Mr. Bryan and another man opened fire on the bandit, and of course the bandit returned fire before ducking into the backseat of the car. As the two hostages and their captors sped away, two cars followed in pursuit. One car contained local mechanic Buzz Lamberson and Mr. Bryan, and another contained Marshal Charles Darty. At times, the cars reached speeds in excess of 90 miles per hour. That's about 145 kilometers per hour. Upon reaching Cambridge City, which lies about 10 miles or 16 kilometers west of Centerville, their captor forced Dunbar to turn into a side street. Through the vehicle's rear window, the car containing Mr. Bryan and Buzz Lammerson could be seen speeding right on by along the National Road. After giving them the slip, the bandit forced his prisoner to drive to New Lisbon, which lies about 7 miles or 11 kilometers to the northwest of Cambridge City. He then ordered Dunbar to stop the car while he reloaded his gun. The kidnapper, still believing that the grocer was Mr. Bryan, stated that since the, quote, job had been bungled, his only option was to kill his two hostages before turning the gun upon himself. Dunbar desperately tried to talk him out of it. In part, Dunbar stated, quote, I am just a citizen who walked into this thing. I am not this woman's husband. After a bit of hesitation, he ordered them out of the car and the two ran off as fast as they could. About a half hour after the gunfight had broken out, Mrs. Bryan called her husband to let him know that she was okay. Dunbar described his captor as being about 5 feet 8 inches tall, that's about 173 centimeters, 150 pounds or 60 kilograms in weight, was swarthy in complexion, and was left-handed but most distinctively, he had a scar that ran from his left cheekbone right down to the tip of his chin. Of course, Mrs. Bryan and the grocer were now safe, but her son and his babysitter were still missing. It was every parent's worst nightmare. Mrs. Bryan was so upset that she was placed under the care of a physician and ordered to bed. Finally, around 5.30 that evening, Norma and the boy showed up unharmed on the doorstep of a farmhouse in Green's Forks. That's approximately 9 miles or 14.5 kilometers northeast of the crime scene. Farmer Wilbur Thomas and his wife knew nothing of the kidnapping, but after they learned the details, he drove the two victims right back to the Bryan home. Norman told authorities that their kidnapper had panicked after his partner failed to show up at the previously designated meetup point. Assuming that the other bandit had been arrested, he made the decision to release his prisoners prior to speeding off. Mishroy stated, quote, After we were let out of the car, I walked with Johnny, sometimes carrying him, almost a mile to get help. I don't think that the kidnapper intended to take me, but I got in with Johnny anyhow. She described her captor as having red hair, thick lips, and bloodshot eyes. He had talked freely with Norma during the entire ride and offered up some of his clothing to protect both Johnny and her from the cold. She also added that the car was a green 1929 or 1930 Ford Model A coach that had red wire wheels and two bare wires hanging from the arm used to raise and lower the windshield. Norma added, quote, The license number was Ohio TH-423 or 432. I am not sure which. Unfortunately, a search of all registered vehicles showed that there was no vehicle registered with those plate numbers. At 10.30 on Christmas morning, the Sheriff's Department received a call from a nearby farmer who said he had found an abandoned car sitting in one of his fields. It was the Bryans' automobile. Investigators dusted for fingerprints, but since the victims had previously stated that the bandits wore gloves, no useful prints were found. Yet, there were four bullet holes in the car. It turns out that one of the bullets had narrowly missed Julian Dunbar's head while another struck a piece of metal in the front of the car and fell right into Mrs. Bryan's lap. Police had Norma and Dunbar look through hundreds of crime photographs, but none were a match. Prosecutor John Britton made it very clear that when these two thugs were caught, they would be facing either life imprisonment were the death penalty for their actions. On January 4th, 1938, that's 11 days after the kidnapping, three state policemen were driving from their Rushville barracks toward Muncie when they passed a car. One of the officers supposedly said, quote, "'Say, look at those wheels!' To which one of the other men replied, "'That certainly looks like the kidnapped car. "'Let's look a little closer.'" So they pulled the car over and noticed that the car had a fresh coat of black paint covering its original green color. The vehicle's driver, that's 30-year-old William Chester Red Markham of Newcastle, because he had red hair, he denied any involvement in the crime, but he was clearly very nervous. The officers decided to take him in for further questioning. And as they pulled up curbside in Centerville, Norma Shroy was asked to come out and take a look at the prisoner. That's him, she exclaimed. Confronted with Miss Shroy's positive identification, Markham admitted to his role in the abduction. He also named 52-year-old Harry C. Walter, a father of five children, as his accomplice. Police drove to Walter's home in Muncie and they arrested him there. The two men were then taken to Indianapolis for formal booking. And while posing for their mug shots, Walter turned to Markham and said, Give him that big smile of yours, Bill. To which Markham replied, I don't feel much like smiling. Both men were unemployed at the time, and they came up with a kidnapping scheme to raise some much-needed cash, quote, to live on. Centerville was chosen because it was considered to be a, quote, prosperous farm town. And the Bryans were specifically targeted because the father was the cashier of a bank. In his confession, Harry Walter stated, quote, This was not considered as purely a kidnapping case because we knew Mr. and Mrs. Bryan were not financially able to pay any ransom. Using the boy as a weapon, we intended forcing Bryan through his wife to make the payment to us at a specified place. We asked for $3,800 cash of the bank's money. He added, I ordered Mrs. Bryan and Dunbar in the car and started a wild chase. Someone behind the tree shot at me and I shot four times at a truck. Then we began driving with Dunbar at the wheel. We drove through the country and I think into Cambridge City. Someone kept trailing us but did not get close. Anyway, I was out of ammunition, just had one shell left, which I intended using on myself. Then I let them get out in the country and abandon the car. I walked the railroad tracks into Newcastle, where I stayed at the home of Red Markham all night. The next morning, Red Markham took me home to Muncie the morning of December 25, 1937. When questioned by police, Markham was far more detailed in his explanation as to how the whole thing went down. Here's just a little bit of it. Question. Now just start in and tell what happened. Answer. I don't know when it happened. About 2.30 p.m., I guess. Question. What day was it? Answer. About December 24th, 1937. Question. Who was with you? Answer. Harry Walter. Question. Did you go to the house together? Answer. Yes. Now this type of mundane question went on for a while, so here are just a few highlights of what was discussed. Question. What kind of car? Answer. A green Model A Ford coach. Question. Is that your car? Answer. Yes. Question. What kind of license plate did you have on the car? Answer. Ohio 1937. License number 423TH. Now keep in mind that Norma had told the police that the plates were either Ohio TH 423 or 432. So she simply had the numbers and the letters switched. It was learned that these plates had been stolen off of a car in Newcastle, and Markham removed them just before he returned home on the day of the crime. The questioning continued. Question. When did you case it? Answer, about a week and a half before. We have been there about three times. In fact, several days prior to the crime, the kidnappers had stopped a young boy on his way to school and asked him, quote, Where does the banker live? The boy replied, Over there, and pointed to the Bryan home. Markham told authorities, quote, Walter had been there the day before and knocked on the door and said he was taking a church census and the girl had been there alone in the house. After snatching the Brian boy and Norma, Markham drove about four miles or 6.4 kilometers to a side road to await the arrival of Walter with the ransom. He was totally unaware of the kidnapping of Mrs. Bryan and Dunbar, the shootout and chase that followed, and of course the eventual release of the two. So after about two hours of waiting, he concluded that Walter must have been arrested. Question. What did you do then? Answer. I drove about three or four miles north and let the nursing kid out. Question. What did you tell them? Answer. I told the nurse there was a paved road about a mile up the road and that she could get a ride. After the two signed their confessions, they were transported to Richmond around 2.30 a.m., Along the way, Deputy Sheriff Orr Wilson asked Walter what his family thought about the case, and he replied, quote, I'd rather not talk about my family. I'll never see them again anyway. During booking at the jail, all of their personal belongings were taken. Markham had 50 cents on him and Walter $1.39. It was at that moment that Walter stated, quote, that will buy all the tobacco I'll ever need. Fearing that he was contemplating suicide, police took his belt, suspenders, and shoelaces away, you know, prior to locking Walter in his second-floor cell. Later that morning, Sheriff Arthur Quigley asked turnkey Paul Andrews to bring the kidnappers to Prosecutor John Britton's office for further questioning. Just as the pair emerged from their cells, Walter, charged toward the balcony railing, screamed, to hell with the sheriff, and threw himself to the cement floor some 15 feet or 4.6 meters below. As Walter lay bloody and unconscious on the floor below, Markham stated, I never thought he'd do that. I've known him for a long time. He was a good worker, too. I suppose he'd done it for his family, thought that might help them, but it won't do them no good. With his wife and one of his daughters at his bedside at Reed Memorial Hospital, 52-year-old Harry C. Walter passed away four hours later. He was buried in the Moreland Cemetery in Moreland, Indiana. This left Markham to face the kidnapping charges alone. He declined a jury trial and appeared before Judge G. H. Holsher on January 8th. That's just four days after his arrest. The judge stated, quote, Number 13062, State of Indiana versus Harry Walter and William Chester Markham, kidnapping for ransom. Prosecutor Britton then said, quote, This is a charge of kidnapping for ransom. I will read it to you. After reading the lengthy charge, Markham was asked to enter his plea. He replied, Guilty. After some further questioning, the judge handed down his sentence. Quote, William Markham, I now sentence you to the Indiana State Prison for the remainder of your natural life. Prior to the trial, Markham stated, quote, I'm glad to have it over. Maybe in 20 years I'll be back home and start over again. Well, he wouldn't have to wait that long. On May 26, 1949, Indiana Governor Henry F. Schricker commuted Markham's sentence from simply life imprisonment to, quote, From time served to life. The rationale for the change was that Markham had never harmed anyone. He was released a short time later and placed on parole until 1956. Sadly, none of the principles of this story are still with us. William Chester Markham passed away at the age of 67 in April of 1970. Little Johnny Bryan became a Centerville attorney and, just coincidentally, had his law office in the same building that once housed the bank that his father had worked in. He passed away on September 11th of 1998. He was 64 years of age. As for Norma Shroy the babysitter, she would marry Howard E. Bailey and together they raised a son. When interviewed about the kidnapping in 1967, Norma commented that she thought she had seen her kidnapper on a city bus in Richmond after he had been paroled. Quote, I looked at him, and he looked at me, but neither one said a word. I don't know if he knew me or not, but I knew him. When she passed away on November 3rd, 2016, she was 97 years of age, and she was a great-great-grandmother. Useless, useful, of that for you to decide.
0: The makers of Campbell's Soups present The Campbell Playhouse. Orson Welles, producer. Good evening, listeners. This is Ernest Chappell speaking. Tonight, Orson Welles and the Campbell Playhouse observe a Campbell tradition of long standing. They bring you Charles Dickens' well-loved tale of Yuletide, A Christmas Carol. Four years ago, the makers of Campbell Soups went shopping for a Christmas present to give to all their friends. They found it in this story, Charles Dickens' embodiment of the very spirit of Christmas. And they chose well, because throughout the country today, in thousands of homes, it has become an important and beloved Christmas custom to listen to this story. Tonight, this fourth annual presentation is brought to you with a sincere wish that your Christmas may be a happy one, and with the hope that the retelling of A Christmas Carol may help to make it so. And it is more than that, for with this Christmas present to you, Campbells say thank you for your purchases of Campbell's soup throughout the months gone by. At the Christmas season, this becomes especially manifest. Everywhere, grocers see their shelves of Campbell's soups dwindle more rapidly now than at any other time of the year. It used to be thought that the demand increased in preparation for the Christmas feast. But really, it isn't that alone. Women like to have plenty of good soups on hand all through the holidays so that they can serve piping hot, nourishing platefuls at any family mealtime. The youngsters are on the go all day long, making the most of the Christmas vacation, and soup can be ready for them in a jiffy. There's health and happiness in good hot soup. Your grocer has Campbell soups, 21 delicious kinds, Awaiting your selection.
2: That commercials from the December 23rd, 1938 broadcast of Charles Dickens' 1843 classic, A Christmas Carol. Now, since the story's been told over and over again in, I don't know, countless forms over the years, I'll spare you the details of the story. I'm quite certain there are many others who can tell it far better than I could ever do. As you heard, the show is sponsored by Campbell's Soups. The company was originally founded in 1860 by Abraham Anderson as the Anderson Preserving Company. When he joined up with Joseph A. Campbell in 1869, the name was changed to Anderson and Campbell. Makes sense. They produced canned vegetables, tomatoes, jellies, soups, minced meat, and condiments. Mm Mm-mm. When the partnership fell apart in 1876, Campbell bought out Anderson's share and he named the company as the Joseph A. Campbell Preserve Company. It was reorganized again in 1896, becoming Joseph Campbell and Company. In 1897, Arthur Durants, who was a general manager of the company, he hired his 24-year-old nephew. He was a chemist named John T. Durants. He developed a commercially viable method for condensing soup by having the amount of water in each can the younger Durant's would serve as the company president from 1914 through 1930. He eventually bought the company out. In 1898, company executive Herberton Williams convinced the company to adopt the colors of Cornell University's football uniforms for its soups. Ever since, the carnelian red and white color scheme has been standard for Campbell's soups. As an added sign of quality, they included the bronze seal from the 1900 Paris exhibition. Of course, the cans were forever immortalized by Andy Warhol in his Campbell's Soups Cans work of art that consisted of 32 individual canvases, you know, one for each variety of soup that the company offered at the time. Today, there are more varieties of Campbell's Soups than I dare count. I went to their website and I could just scroll and scroll and scroll down. I just can't help but wonder what the Disney Princess Jasmine soup tastes like. The label states that it consists of, quote, enchanted shape-shaped pasta with chicken and chicken broth. I have to say that that suspiciously sounds a lot like their classic chicken noodle soup, but you know with that magical, mystical ingredient that makes it enchanted. So here's a question for you. We've been sending men and women into space ever since Yuri Gagarin made his historic 108-minute flight for the Soviet Union on April 12th of 1961. You know, and since Christmas is right around the corner, can you name the first Christmas song ever broadcast from space and transmitted back to Earth?
1: Well, hang around for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: At the time, I only felt a
1: punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're gonna let you go. This is Justin, and I do the
2: Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime Sometimes you have to gloss over topics like
1: mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me
2: wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say.
0: Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Kat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and
2: cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities.
1: The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media.
2: In other news, here are three stories about the holidays from years past. It was announced on December 22nd of 1932 that officials in Washington, D.C. had been approached to raise the maximum quota of sacramental wine that was permitted to Jewish families. You see, due to Prohibition, Jewish families were only allowed five gallons of wine for a family of five or more. So Dr. James M. Durand, who is the Industrial Alcohol Commissioner, and Colonel Amos W.W. W. Woodcock, who is the Prohibition Director they were both approached with the view that the quotas should be doubled. Dr. Duran was thought to be in favor of the proposal, and those close to Woodcott believed that he also would be receptive to the recommendation. Of course, in the end, it didn't matter one way or the other. By the end of 1933, Prohibition was repealed, and of course families could consume as much wine as they liked, you know, whether it's for religious purposes or not. Next, we have a story from December 19th of 1944, which reported that a seven-foot nylon parachute with a package attached to it had fallen to the ground in Detroit, Michigan the previous Sunday. Inside the package was a camera, a handmade locket, two prayer books, and a message. The note read, quote, Hi, sweetheart. Honey, I'm sorry, but this will have to do for part of your Christmas present. I love you. Jim. An inscription inside one of the prayer books identified this mysterious package as being the property of Private First Class Wesley DeQuinn, who just happened to be overseas for more than a year. At the time that this package dropped from the sky, Jim, as De Quinn was commonly referred to, Jim was in the jungles of New Guinea. Police were able to locate his wife, Barbara, and she was able to positively identify the contents of the package as having been from her husband. The parachute had landed in someone's yard about 6 miles or 9.7 kilometers from their home. Army officials stated that they intended to keep the parachute, but planned to turn over the gifts to Mrs. DeQuin. However, they were uncertain as to who had dropped this package, but they promised to investigate. And in our last story for today, it was reported on January 11, 1961 that Mr. and Mrs. Leo M. Dooley of 2190 24th Street Southwest in Akron, Ohio, had been receiving a Christmas card every year since 1943 and had no clue who was sending them. The Dooley's received the first greeting card from this unknown family before their then 17-year-old son Larry had been born. Mrs. Dooley told the Akron Beacon Journal, quote, We have no idea who Jackie, Herman, and children are, and we've never sent them a card in return. She added that whoever was sending the cards quote, must be good natured people. When I send Christmas cards four or five times and get none in return, I stop. In the article, the Dooley speculate as to who could possibly be sending these cards. They figured it probably was not a relative, you know, but could have been a long-lost friend. Or, since Mr. Dooley had worked at B.F. Goodrich Company for more than 30 years, it could be someone from work. Then, of course, there was the possibility that it was an old boyfriend or girlfriend. But whatever the situation, the Dooley's wanted to meet the family and were kind enough to invite them to dinner. Well, a little publicity goes a long way. The very next day, the mystery was solved. The cards were being sent by Mr. and Mrs. Marion H. Watson and their five children. It turns out that Mr. Dooley was Marion Watson's foreman at the B.F. Goodrich plant. In that role, Mr. Dooley signed 40 company cards every December, which a secretary then addressed and mailed to each of the personnel who worked for him. Now, it's not that Mr. Dooley didn't know who Marion Watson was. He did know him personally. The problem was that Mr. Watson used the name Marion at work, but went by his middle name of Herman at home. In addition, Mrs. Watson's first name is Martha, but she used the name Jackie instead. As for that dinner that Mrs. Dooley promised the mystery family, Mrs. Watson took a rain check because she was dieting at the time. Instead, the two families planned for a summer picnic. So earlier in the podcast, I'd asked you about the first Christmas song ever broadcast from space. Now, I asked a colleague this question the other day, and she gave the correct answer without even thinking about it. The answer is Jingle Bells. It occurred on December 16, 1965, that's the morning after spacecrafts Gemini 6A and Gemini 7 completed the first successful rendezvous in space. Gemini 6A pulled within one foot or a third of a meter of Gemini 7. With their intended mission complete, Captain Wally Shearer, who was aboard Gemini 6A, along with astronaut Tom Stafford, they decided to play a bit of a practical joke on those back on the ground at Mission Control. Now the audio isn't that great, but let's take a listen to what Shearer said.
0: Roger, Houston uh, 7, this is Jiminy 6. Uh, we have an object, looks like a satellite uh, going from north to south, pumping a polar orbit. Uh, he's in a very low trajectory, traveling from north to south. Has a very high ratio. looks like it might even be a, uh, a to very low looks like. Maybe
2: that is clearly a bit garbled, but some like to use this audio as proof that Shira had spotted a UFO. but he was really implying that he had just sighted Santa Claus. Shiran and Stafford had somehow managed to sneak a harmonica and a small set of bells aboard the spacecraft, and they proceeded with their rendition of Jingle Bells. A syndicated UPI report at the time stated, quote, It sounded a bit like a badly managed bagpipe. Well, I'll let you be the judge of that. Well, a few hours later, Shira and Stafford would make the first computer-controlled precision landing at the Atlantic Ocean. In a 2005 interview with Smithsonian Magazine, Stafford said that, quote, Wally came up with the idea. He added, He could play the harmonica and we practiced two or three times before we took off, but of course we didn't tell the guys on the ground. We never considered singing since I couldn't carry a tune in a bushel basket. Now, if you're curious, pictures of the bells and the harmonica can be found on the Smithsonian's Air and Space Museum's website. Simply go to www.si.edu and just type bells and Gemini into the search box, and it should be the first match. At least it was for me. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I'll keep this short. Whether you celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, or you know, Festivus for the rest of us, I just want to wish you a happy and healthy holiday season. Enjoy, be safe, and happy New Year. Take care, everyone.